All right, so now we're going to jump into Romans chapter 10. We have finished with Romans 9, and I'm so excited now to jump into chapter 10. And as a transition, why don't we pray and ask God for help? We're not dealing with a very weighty text, as in election and reprobation like a few weeks ago, but this is a weighty text in another way because we're dealing with prayer and God's sovereignty, and we're dealing with Where is righteousness found? Where is righteousness found? So let's pray, ask God for his help, and let's ask him that he might speak to each one of us. Father, we thank you for the privilege that it is to gather as your sons and daughters to worship you. Father, you made us for this, that we might sing your praise, that we might communicate with you through prayer that we might hear from you. And you've given us your word that we might hear from you. Father, we desire that your word not just be heard and understood, but that you, by your power, by the Holy Spirit, would help us to live it. God, we don't want to just be hearers of the word. We want to be doers. And so God, would you please help us tonight? Help us to understand, speak to each one of us in this room, I pray that you would have something unique for every person, that they would walk away encouraged and built up, perhaps convicted, perhaps torn down and then built up. Father, we pray that your gospel would be powerful and effective tonight to save as it is the power of God unto salvation. Help us as we look at Romans 10. Holy Spirit, please come and do your illuminating work. In Jesus' name, everyone said... Amen. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Romans 10. We're going to be in verses 1 to 4. So four verses in total. All the text will appear behind me on the screen. And so even if you don't have a Bible uh, or you don't like to look down and look up, look down and look up, that's okay. All the text will be on the screen behind me. Now, before we jump in, let me just do two minutes of background, okay? If you've been with us for any amount of time, you know that up until chapter 9, the gospel that Jesus was God become man, lived perfectly according to God's standard, died on a Roman cross, was buried, and then was raised on the third day, Easter, has ascended and sent the Holy Spirit. That's the essence of the gospel. That's the news, is that Jesus did this for us as a substitute. If we will place our faith in him, we can be forgiven of all our sins and saved. Okay. Paul takes eight chapters to flesh that out. Eight chapters full of gospel theology. Then in chapter nine, Paul deals with the question of, okay, if Jesus was the Jewish Messiah promised in the Old Testament and most Jewish, ethnically Jewish people are rejecting Jesus which was the case, then has God's promise to the Jewish people that he will be their God, they will be his people, they will have a land, and they will be above all the nations his chosen, has God's promise to them failed? And that's what Paul begins to wrestle with here in chapter 9, continuing in chapter 10, and chapter 11. He takes three chapters to wrestle with this question of, what do we do with the ethnic Jewish people through whom the Messiah had come. Okay. And so we just finished chapter nine, dealing primarily with election, God's choosing to be merciful to whom he'll be merciful, to be compassionate to whom he'll be compassionate, to pass over those whom he wills to receive justice instead of mercy. And that's on God and it's his prerogative to be merciful or to administrate justice if he wills. So now we're going to wrestle with the question of, as I said, prayer and where is righteousness found? So let's read the text together and we'll begin to go through it verse by verse. Brothers, that word there in the Greek does not demand maleness. So you could translate it brothers and sisters. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them them is the Jewish people, is that they may be saved. For I bear them, 
the Jewish people, witness that they, Jewish people, have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Four, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What a beautiful text. Uh, Verse 4 there, one of the most clearest, theologically rich declarations of the gospel in the letter. And we'll get there. All right, so first, let's wrestle with verse 1. Romans 10, 1. Now, there's going to be a shift here. I want you to notice this shift over the coming weeks. Chapter 9 was very heavy on God's sovereignty. What you're going to see happen now into chapter 10 and 11, sovereignty will not disappear, but what will begin to appear more clear is man's responsibility. And as you heard over the last month or so, there is not a contradiction between God's sovereignty and human's responsibility. There is a going together of it, a confluence, if you will. It's not a contradiction. Rather, there's a paradox, a seeming contradiction. And so we'll wrestle with that first. Would that be okay? Because here, what we're wrestling with is Paul's desire and earnest prayer for the Jewish people is that they would be saved. And so what Paul says here is like, look, I, my heart's desire, far from me not caring about my own people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. Paul was Jewish. We'll get to that in a minute. He says, rather than me not caring about them, I care deeply about them. My heart's desire, the heart is the core of your being, the essence of who you are. My desire for them and prayer is that they would be saved. I am constantly praying for the salvation of my Jewish people. Now, here's what's interesting. Remember what he just said a chapter previous. God is the one who determines who will be saved. It's not about human will or decision, but about God who shows mercy. And so we could take from that verse in Romans 9 and take this verse in 10.1 and say, wait, doesn't this contradict? If God is the one who saves and he'll have mercy on whom he will and he'll harden whom he will, then why in the world would Paul be praying for salvation for anyone? That doesn't make sense. It, it's almost... Uh, the same argument here when we look at Matthew 6, 7 to 8 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Gentiles are non-Jews. And this is more like formulaic prayers. Like if you just say the magic words over and over and over, you'll have what you ask. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Verse 8, do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. And the question then is, wait, if God knows what I need even before I ask, then why ask? Why in the world would I even pray? If he knows what I need before I ask, then why would I even pray? That's a good question. And so what we're wrestling with here is, if God is sovereign and elects those whom he'll be saved, whom whom who will be saved and whom won't be saved. Why would we pray for people to be saved? That's the, that's the question I want to wrestle with. Why should I pray for my mother, father, grandmother, grandfather, brother, sister, niece, coworker, friend? Why pray for them if God has, before the foundation of the world, chosen whom he will save? That's kind of a good question, right? Why would we pray for them if, if they're already chosen or not chosen? And I have wrestled with that question for many, many years, okay? And one of the the clearest, I think, theologians on this, now there's many, but I'm going to quote Roger Nicole. How many of you have ever heard of Roger Nicole? He's not a very famous theologian. He's written a ton of essays. Um, This is taken from a lecture he did in Philadelphia. And listen for the imagery here that Roger, Roger Nicole gives us. I am not used to quoting at length theologians and authors. I don't usually do that. However, this is valuable enough for me to do so. So what question are we trying to answer? If God chooses whom he will save, 
then why should we pray for people to be saved? Okay? Listen close. Do you think that you can really change the mind of God? Roger Nicole asks. So he's wrestling with, when we pray, do we change God's mind? Like you have a request, you think something should be done or not done, you want things to be different, you want God to change somebody, do we change God's mind with prayer? That is... Can prayer make God modify his sovereign plan? There are people who feel that unless you are prepared to say this, there is no great value in prayer. If we don't change God's mind, if we can't make things happen with prayer, then there's really no value to prayer. If that is the power you have, it is certainly a most dangerous thing. Surely God does not need our counsel in order to set up what is desirable. Surely God, whose knowledge penetrates all minds and hearts, does not need to have us intervene to tell him what he ought to do. The thought that we are to change the mind of God by our prayers is a terrifying concept. I will be frank to confess that if I really thought I could change the mind of God by praying, I would abstain. I'm just not praying, he says. If I change God's mind by my prayers, I'm just not praying. I would have to say, how can I presume with the limitations of my own mind and the corruptions of my own heart, how can I presume to interfere in the counsels of the Almighty? It is almost as if you were to introduce somebody who is utterly ignorant of electronics to a weapons plant in which by pushing certain buttons, one might precipitate an explosion. You say, go ahead, push buttons, never mind what happens. Oh no, there is comfort for the child of God in being assured that our prayers will not change God's mind. This is not what is involved in prayer. And we are not in danger of precipitating explosions by rash desires on our part. But then people say, if you cannot change God's mind, what is the point of praying? If prayer does not change things, prayer is worthless. Here you have perhaps noticed that I've changed the formula. I did not say change the mind of God, but changes things. I never said that prayer does not change things. Prayer does change things, but it does not change the mind of God. The reason prayer changes things, but not God's mind is that he has appointed prayer as an effectual means for accomplishing his own purposes. There's the key, friends. Let me repeat that. He has appointed prayer as an effectual means for accomplishing his own purposes. This effectual means is essential for this accomplishment. When we have a right understanding of the sovereignty of God, we recognize that God has established a plan in which not only the effects, but also the causes are ordained. We cannot disconnect the cause from the effects or the effects from the cause. One more short paragraph. Listen. We pray for the salvation of someone we love. Someone God places on our hearts to intercede and plead for. That person is born again by the work of the Holy Spirit. We cannot say, this would have happened whether I prayed or not. It is related to our prayers. God who has appointed the salvation has also appointed the prayer as a means to that salvation. We cannot omit any link in the chain and say that the chain will exist whether the link is there or not. Okay, here's what Roger said very succinctly. God not only ordains or predetermines or predestines everything that comes to be, which is what Ephesians 1.11 clearly says, he predestines or predetermines all things according to the counsel of his will. He not only ordains all things, but listen, he ordains the means by which all these things come about. 
In other words, how they play out in human history, in our lives. Causality is what we're wrestling with. Hey, one of my favorite illustrations, I've used it before, I think it's helpful. You're driving through uh, Pittsburgh in rush hour traffic, if you're at least on the east, like I am. And before the Squirrel Hill Tunnels, if it's like 6.30 a.m., eventually you're going to hit stopped or almost stopped traffic. But here's the question. How does that happen? And I know some of you are saying, because people are idiots and they don't know how to drive through tunnels. Heads are shaking. Like, yeah, that's precisely the point. People have no idea how to drive in tunnels. Okay. Here's what happened, though. Okay, Let, Let's go a little deeper than people are idiots. All right? Okay. At some point, someone approaching the Squirrel Hill Tunnel, traffic was flowing. Okay, there's a, a line of cars and there's distance in between the cars. At some point, someone got freaked out by the tunnel and hit the brake. And then you know what happened to the person behind them? They hit the brake. And what happened to the person behind them? They hit the brake. And at some point, if it was dark out, what you would see is red, 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 all the way to you. And now you're stuck. But if that first person would not have jammed on the brakes, no succession of red. That's called causality. Those are all means that God has ordained. Every hit of the brake. And that's, that's almost impossible for us to imagine. How a being could be so infinite and powerful that he could ordain even the gas pedal and the brake pedal. But this is our God. This is what Scripture clearly teaches. Now, here's how this relates to prayer and election. Friends, if God elects someone to get saved, guess what he also has predetermined? That someone would pray for them. And that someone would share the gospel with them. Friends, what if that's you? What if you're the means What if you're the person that is supposed to be praying for the lost person in your life? Your father, your mother, your sister, your brother, your neighbor, that coworker you can't stand? That president, that vice president, the next president, the governor you love so much? Seriously. And how do you know that God isn't going to use you as the means by sharing the gospel to save that person. You see, this is where we must take responsibility. As Paul is, look, my heart's desire and prayer for the Jewish people is that they might be saved. This is the great preacher of election here, friends, saying, I pray for people that they might be saved. Why? Because Paul understands what Roger Nicole just took about five paragraphs to answer is that God ordains the ends, but he also ordains the means. And Paul knows that he must preach the gospel. They must hear in order to be saved. And if they hear, they may hear with dead hearts and deaf ears and blind eyes unless God intervenes. And God will not intervene unless we pray. Friends, this is where we reform people have a problem. We're like, no, God's going to do what he wants regardless of me. Okay, in one sense, I agree. He'll have someone else pray for them, if you like that. But someone's going to pray for them, and someone's going to share the gospel with them. And so here, James, in James 4, 2, and then jumping to 5, 16 to 18, says this, you do not have, why? Because you do not ask. It's as simple as that. You did not pray, and therefore, you don't have. John Piper commenting on this verse says, listen, if you would have prayed, the universe would have been different. But because you didn't, it's not different. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Do you believe that? 
Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Now, the reason he brings in Elijah, because Elijah was a hero of the Jewish people. James is Jewish. He was the pastor of the Jerusalem church, full of Jewish people. And Elijah was one of the Jewish heroes. Who showed up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus? Who? Moses and Elijah. The fulfillment of the law and the fulfillment of the prophets, Christ, in the middle. Elijah was waited for at the Jewish Seder, right around Passover. Every year, a chair was set for Elijah, who actually ended up being who? John the Baptist. That's right, the Elijah who was to come. And so here, he pulls out the great hero, the great prophet Elijah, and he says, hey, remember that story in the Old Testament when Elijah prayed fervently that it wouldn't rain. And then for three years and six months, it didn't rain on the earth. You remember that story? Hey, guess what? Elijah was a man just like you. Mankind, a nature like yours and mine. You know what that means? Elijah was not more than human. He wasn't deity. He wasn't Thor. He was a man like us. He was more Batman than Thor, right? I know I'm mixing universes. Someone just got mad at me. That's okay. It's all right. Relax. You'll be fine. He prayed, look, fervently. Fervently. What does that mean? Repeatedly, with passion, with repetition. And you say, if God is sovereign, why is he wasting his time? Right? That's the way we think. You think Elijah thought God was sovereign? Friends, this might seem obvious after I say it. If God is not sovereign, then why pray? If God can't be all powerful to move according to your request, then why pray? And so here Elijah is with a, with a nature like ours. And the argument is, listen, James is saying, look, you're just like Elijah. And he prayed fervently. And you know what happened? It stopped raining for three years and six months. Oh yeah, and then he prayed again and the heavens gave rain. And the earth bore its fruit. In other words, it stopped being arid and desert-like. And Elijah did that through prayer. Now we know God did that, but what was the means? Elijah's prayer. In the same way, friends, we need to be praying for our lost friends and family and neighbors. Don't say to yourself, if God has chosen them, they'll be saved and I don't have to do anything. I really don't have to care about them at all. That's not Paul's attitude. Remember Romans 9.1? He says, if I could be accursed for the sake of my Jewish people, I would go to hell in their place. I would substitute myself if it was possible that they might be saved. That's a man who cares about people, his own people specifically. And yet he wrote, he hardens whom he will and has mercy on whom he will. And yet here he is praying for the lost. So friends, what we should do as good theologians, and may I remind you, you're all theologians. Anytime you take God upon your mouth to talk about him, you're doing theology. The question is not, am I a theologian? The question is, am I a good theologian or am I a bad theologian? God forbid we are bad theologians, okay? Theology just means the study of God. So anytime you talk about God or the Bible or angels or demons or Satan or hell, you're doing theology every time. So you're all theologians. I want you to be good ones. Okay? That's my hope and prayer for you. And so a good theologian, insert yourself there, a good theologian can hold in tension two seemingly contradictory truths. And there is a resolution if we will be patient and think. And what's the resolution here? The resolution is God, yes, ordains the end, who will be saved and who won't, but he also ordains the means, which is you and I praying for people 
and sharing the gospel. We clear? Okay. James Montgomery Boyce, another theologian who I appreciate, another, uh, he's a Philly guy. Um, he said this, God always ordains the means to some goal as well as the ends. So if he has ordained to save a certain individual through our prayers, it is as necessity that we pray for that individual as it is that the individual be saved. It is necessary that we pray for the individual just as much as it is necessary that they be saved. Indeed, we must pray since the individual will not be saved apart from the ordained intercession, meaning praying for them. So let's do this this week in your group. Why don't we take some time and pray for some lost people? Can we do that? Let's make some application of this text. And when you're in group this week, let's take five, 10 minutes and do some prayer for the lost people in your life. And maybe if you want to get real risky, pray that God might bring them here so we can see the evidence of the prayer. Like, hey, we prayed for that guy in group a month ago, a week ago. Wouldn't that be awesome? Let's do that this week. A whole church meeting together in homes, praying for lost people this week. That's a beautiful thing. All right, let's do verse two. For I bear them witness. Remember, this is the Jewish people. I bear them witness. I I testify to this fact that they have a zeal for God. Oh yes, they are zealous for God, but not according to knowledge. So what we could draw out of this verse two here is zeal is good or bad. What do you think? Yeah, it's, it's, it's sometimes good. <laughs> you could be zealous as a terrorist. That's not good. <laughs> you could be zealous like Paul before Jesus to hunt down Christians and imprison them. That's not too good. So here's what we could say. Okay. Zeal is neutral. Zeal can be good and it can be bad. It depends on what you're zealous for. I've, I've encountered quite a few zealous Christians in my day. And, and what I found about them is they need some wisdom usually. Because <laughs> they tend to like steamroll people. Yeah, hit them with a theological bat. Come here, you need clubbed, you know. <laughs> wow, you're zealous. I love you, you know. I love you too. Bat, you know, just bleeding. Bat, and I'll kick you one for good measure. I'm zealous for the Lord. <laughs> you're wrong. I'm going to beat the error out of you. <laughs> Those zealous folks, watch out. No. So Paul here is saying they do have a zeal. They're fired up about God. Oh, and they were. The Jewish people were very zealous for the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. But the problem was, friends, when that God became man and dwelt among them, do you know what they did? They killed him. Though they were zealous, but then when he showed up, their zeal was misplaced. And in their zeal, they killed God. And that's, that's what he's getting at here. Look, it was not according to knowledge. If they would have known that Jesus was God, the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, they would not have killed him. They were ignorant in the knowledge sense. They didn't see God visited them like he promised. They thought he was possessed by demons. He does what he does by the power of Beelzebul, the Lord of the flies. What a tragic mistake to attribute the power of God to Satan. And Jesus just casually said, look, look, let's think about this. If I cast out demons by Satan, then by whom do your people cast them out? (laughs) But... 
if I really am casting out demons and doing miracles and healing, this is the finger of God. And that was the truth. And yet they missed it. They did not see God in their midst, Emmanuel, God with us. They missed him. So Romans 12, 8, we'll get there. Paul says, the one who leads, who has the gift of leading, do it with zeal. And so he, he says, zeal is a good thing. If you're a leader, you should, you should lead zealously. In John 2.17, after Jesus had cleansed the temple of all of the money changers and those selling animals and prohibiting the Gentiles from coming in and worshiping because they were in the court where the Gentiles were allowed, Jesus drives everyone out with a, with a whip and yelling and pushing people out. And his disciples remembered after witnessing this that it was written, quoting Psalm 69.9, zeal for your house will consume me. So Jesus was zealous for the honor of God and for the place where his manifest presence dwelt, the temple. And when non-Jewish people were not able to come in and worship because there was all this commotion in the place where they could go, he was upset that people were being hindered from coming to God and being able to worship. And so he said, I will have none of this. And he literally physically drove them all out. And the disciples, after witnessing this and remembering it and the Holy Spirit, when John was written much later after the event, it says they remembered. Oh yeah, remember Psalm 69.9? Zeal for your house will consume me. That was about Jesus. But Paul himself knows something about zeal, doesn't he? We read this earlier. Thank you, Aunt Diane. Fantastic job reading. Paul's recounting his pre-Jesus days, and he says, as to zeal, you want to talk about zeal? A persecutor of the church. My aim in my fire for God was to destroy Christianity and Christians. I would not rest until all the Jesus followers were extinct. And this sect of Judaism was a forgotten past. That's how zealous I was. Persecuting the church. And then he goes on to say, as to righteousness under the law, meaning what he could do outwardly with the 613 commands of the Old Testament, the Mosaic law, he says, faultless. I looked at myself in the mirror and I looked at the law of God as a mirror and I said, you are faultless, my man. Great job. And he looked down on everyone else from his lofty heights. But, verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish. That word is dung, by the way. Crap. I count it all as crap. What do you do with crap? Well, you get rid of it quickly, right? You either flush it or if it's from an animal, you put it in a bag, tie that thing up. and ew. It's trash to me, he says. All of my former accomplishments for my glory, trash and dung, worth nothing, worth, worth less than nothing. That's how he saw himself. I would rather gain Christ at the end of verse eight. You see, so he's making a value judgment here, guys. This is what he's doing. He's saying my accomplishments versus knowing Christ. I throw everything I've accomplished away. Trash, dung, worthless. Get it away from me. Tie it up in a trash bag and let them remove it. I know Christ. That's what Paul says here. And he calls it this surpassing worth. This is so valuable to me. It's beyond priceless. I remember one time I was in DC uh, going through one of the famous art museums and there's 
you know, Da Vinci's and these famous paintings. And I remember I was standing by this one and, and you know, one's expensive when they have guards like standing by the painting and like you get to stand there, but not too close. And I said to the guard, Hey, how much is that worth? And he looked, it was like a, it was a ship on the ocean. I had no idea who the painter was. He said, priceless. In other words, you can't put a price tag on that painting. It's a one of a kind. Now, I'm sure that you could put a price tag on it, but it just shows this is very valuable, enough that I get paid to stand by it and guard it. Listen, Paul says, this worth of knowing Christ is beyond anything I have accomplished in my entire life. It is of surpassing worth. Now, most of us, we really don't know much about that, right? We're like, yeah, knowing Jesus is good. But we don't speak of it or think of it as a surpassing value to everything else in our lives, do we? Or what we've accomplished even. And be, he, says, he says, I count the rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. I, I don't want my own righteousness. I don't want to accomplish favor with God by what I can do by the law anymore that comes from the law. But that which comes through faith, faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And that's our next verse. Verse 3 says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, and seeking to establish their own, remember Paul, according to legalistic righteousness, faultless. He said, they were just like me. And I was just like them. Zealous to earn God's favor by what I could do. By the things I didn't do and the things I did do. Zealous to do right in order to gain God's favor. He says, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Doug Moo here says, the righteousness of God denotes the dynamic activity of God whereby he brings people into relationship with himself. Let me read that again. So here, being ignorant of the righteousness of God, what does it mean, the righteousness of God? Doug Moo, Roman scholar, says it denotes the dynamic activity of God whereby he brings people into relationship with himself. Friends, did you know that you cannot come to God if you're unrighteous? He will not accept you. You have no dealings with him. You cannot be in his presence for he is holy and you are unholy. You are unrighteous. I am unholy. I am unrighteous. What shall we do with this dilemma? If righteousness is demanded, faultlessness, perfection, be holy as I am holy. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, who were the most righteous in that culture. He couldn't have pointed to anyone more righteous. Unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not see the kingdom. So what do we do? Friends, we rest in the righteousness of another, namely the God-man, Jesus Christ. You see, when Jesus came to earth, he lived 30 or so years before he started his ministry. Let me ask you a question. What was he doing for those 30 years? We really have no record of what was going on other than a trip to the temple when he was 12 or so. And he was debating with the scholars there in the temple. What was he doing for all those years? Let me ask you. Was he spending his time like healing woodland creatures? Building cabins in the woods? Friends, what he was doing was he was living perfectly 
as an adolescent, as a teenager, as a young 20s, into his 30s, and then until the day he said, it is finished. He did not sin once. And he always did what was right. You see, the Savior couldn't just show up, boom, go to the cross within seconds, die, be buried, and then boom, just raise. No, he had to live perfectly. He had to accomplish positive righteousness. Why? For me. For you. Friends, you need to be righteous. And you're not. But Jesus was. And you see here, here's the problem. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God. What righteousness of God? The righteousness of the God-man. The righteousness that God provides us in Christ. We get the perfect life of Jesus as if we lived his life. That's how God sees us. God gives you the gift of what's called credited righteousness or imputed righteousness. On the cross, Jesus gets credited your sinful life. He is punished on the cross like he committed all of your sins. He is punished on the cross like he was watching what you were watching on your phone. Right? Clicking on those sites. It's just Instagram. I mean, come on. It's, it's a little bit of Instagram. The death of the Son of God for your lust. Yeah, I'm taking shots. I love you guys. <laughs> but see, here's the, here's the deal. He was willing to go to the cross not for his sins, but for yours. And pay them all. Jesus paid it all all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Praise God. And so, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness by what I can accomplish by living according to this law, again, 613 laws, 10 when you boil them down, and when Jesus boiled down the 10, we got two, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's all 613 put into two. And yet we can't even do the two. Yet Jesus did. You remember those bracelets for a while that people used to wear? They were really popular. It was WWJD. What would Jesus do? A better question is what did Jesus do? And friends, what he accomplished was perfection as a gift for us. You can rest in Christ. That is what you must do. You should not, you should never, ever think that God loves you or will accept you or will forgive you based on your own performance. Last week, Pete had a fantastic question in his discussion guide. And it was basically... Do you have trouble shifting your justification to be based on your sanctification? Now, Pete's a theologian. It's a very theologically way of speaking. But here's what Pete meant by that question. When we get saved, we do change. The way the reformers would say it is something like this. We're saved by faith alone and grace alone, but not faith and grace that remains alone. You're, you're only saved by grace through faith. But after salvation occurs, you begin to change. And so if you have grace through faith, stop. No change. Nothing happened. Nothing's different. No new desires. No new lifestyle. Maybe the grace and faith wasn't real. It's very possible. Because we're saved by grace alone, but not grace that remains alone. And the temptation for us, Pete did a good job with this question, is to, man, I've grown a lot. Look at all the things I'm not doing anymore. Look at all these things I am doing now. And so we start to say, I'm saved because of, look at all I'm not doing. 
And look at all I am doing. Meanwhile, the subtle shift there was Jesus is Savior to I am Savior. You see that? When, when, when we start thinking to ourselves, look at how I'm living. I'm saved. Friends, you just looked away from the Savior to yourself. That is not good. We do need to do that kind of examination. And that was a great question, Pete. Thank you for putting that in there. That's really helpful for us to think through. When I think about basing or founding my salvation on something, am I founding it on me and what I'm doing or not doing? Or am I totally looking away from myself to another who can save me? And the devil is crafty and subtle. And so we, we, we are tempted to stop looking at Christ for salvation and start looking in the mirror. Or, this is a favorite of the devil, look how bad they are. And they sit next to you in church. Surely you must be saved if they're saved. And, and that, that shift is, one, you become judgmental of your brother. Two, you become self-righteous. And then three, you start to look to yourself for salvation. And the devil's like, I am brilliant. And they are foolish. Friends, we look to the Savior to save us, not ourselves. And if we're looking in self-righteousness at other people, that is a dangerous place to be. Yet it's a great temptation. When you start thinking you're something because of what you accomplished and other people are nothing because look how they're living. Friends, that sounds a lot like Paul in Philippians 3. According to legalistic righteousness, brush your shoulders off, faultless. You start sounding like him. That's not good. We never want to base our security on how we're doing. We base our security on Christ. All right, let's move on. Verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, here's the problem with trying to keep the law, okay? And, and we have to do this. And I do have about 10 minutes to do this. So this will be perfect. And we'll be done just on time. You can go back and, and get a coffee and relax and you'll be, you'll be home before 7.30, all right? Seven o'clock. James, we, we've gone to James a lot tonight because I think James is a brilliant book when it comes to the law and faith even though you might think it weighs heavier on what we do or don't do, it's actually a brilliant book about the gospel. James says, listen, if you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, and then he pulls one out, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's Jesus' second greatest commandment. You are doing well. James is like, good job. You're doing well. But if you show partiality... You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, just previous to this, he was dealing with what happens when a rich person comes into your gathering, your worship gathering, and you give them this fantastic seat and you say to this poor person, hey, get up and sit in the back. Like, make room. This person's important. Okay? And, and he says, you realize you're doing that, but you're showing partiality. You're showing favoritism. You're favoring one person over another like they have more worth and value than another. We do this with celebrities and sports figures, right? Will Smith came in here. None of you would be like, I mean, you shouldn't have slapped Chris Rock, bro. It was messed up. None of you would say that. You'd be like, Will, Will, let me get, let me get a picture, bro. Come here. You know, you'd be all up on your Facebook like, Will Smith came to my church. I got a picture with him. He signed my Bible, man. You better not let Will Smith sign your Bible, man. All right, but here's the point. We would all be pretty impressed if Will walked in here, right? Because, man, he's famous and he's a great movie star and he's the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, for goodness sake. I mean, come on. But here's the thing. If we took one of our regular, quote unquote, church members who were sitting up here and said, Will, here, you come here, you get in the back. This is Will Smith. And we sat him up front. We would be showing partiality 
Because the truth is, the Imago Dei resides in every person. And when we show partiality, we pretend like it doesn't. You're a lesser being than this person. And so that's what James is saying. You're like, look, if you, if you say you love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressor. He's doing a good job here with his, with his audience. And then he says, for whoever keeps the whole law, all 613, but fails in one point, one mess up, you fail in one point, you become guilty of all of it. Wow. For, and, then, and now he's going to base his argument in God. He says, for he who said, do not commit adultery, God said that in the Ten Commandments. Also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. In other words, God is the one who gives the commands. And so if you break one, you have violated God. It doesn't matter how many you've kept. If you've messed one up, you've messed with God. Because the same God who said, don't do this, also said, don't do this. Friends, when we sin, who do we sin against? God, ultimately. Yeah, we sin against our neighbor. Yeah, we sin against our parents and our children and any number of other people. Society, cheat on your taxes. It's tax time, baby. You say, government? Can't sin against the government. According to Romans 13, you can. And so you sin against God by doing that. But they take enough of my money. I'm justified. Talk to God about Romans 13 and let's see who wins. It's just a little bit. I'm just hiding a little bit. Wait a minute. So you're hiding money from the government. What's that called? Tax evasion? Is that what that's called? You say, it's, I mean, it's not really tax evasion. It's just tips, right? It's just tips. And now we're sweating. We're like, this isn't good. All right, shut up about this. Let's not talk about it. <laughs> TurboTax already did my taxes, man. Come on. Okay, here's the deal, friends. We, when we sin, we sin against God. And if you are proud about being able to keep one aspect of the law, but you fail in another point, you've broken the whole thing. That's the point. And so self-righteousness has no place for a Christian. None. You have no grounds for self-righteousness whatsoever. James says in verse uh, 12 there of chapter 2, so speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So he, he calls the law a liberating law. He has a positive view of the law. And he says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And uh, some have said that James is basically a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And I've found that to be helpful because he does deal with many of the same themes. And you remember what Jesus said in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And that's what he's saying here. Look, Judgment without mercy to the one who has no mercy. But mercy will triumph over judgment. So if you're a merciful person, you will receive mercy from God. And I think a better way to understand that is if God has been merciful to you, how can you not then but be merciful? And if you can't be merciful and you're ruthless, have you actually experienced the mercy of God? That's the way we should look at that. Okay. Now, we're not actually in James. We're in Romans, remember? We're in Romans 10. And so in Romans 10, verse 4, Christ is the end of the law. Because remember, if you failed at one point, what happened? You broke the whole thing. All of it is violated if you violate it at one point. And so the good news is Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone and anyone who believes. What a fantastic promise. Now, uh, 
One more theological note, and then we're done. That word end there is telos in the Greek. And it means termination and goal in this context. Termination and goal. So let's, let's listen to Doug Moo one more time as he opens this up. Greek telos or end. Remember, Christ is the end. It combines the ideas of end and goal like the finish line in a race. Christ was what the law all along was directed toward. Christ was all along what the law was directed toward. And now that Israel has reached the finish line, the coming of Christ, the race, which is the law, has ended. In other words, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. I've come to fulfill it. And so, if the finish line is crossed, the race is over. If the law all along was to point us to Christ, and now that He's here, it's the end of trying to please God and be right with Him by the law. The law no longer governs the people of God in the way it did before Christ, Doug Moo says. And we could go into the third use of the law, if you'd like. So what what does the law do? One, it shows us God's character, what he likes, doesn't like, his moral perfection. It shows us morality, period. That's what the law does. It shows us God. Number two, it points us to Christ because it shows us we are guilty and we need a savior. It's like a mirror that shows us we're dirty. But then after we come to Christ, the law is a guide for us to live a life pleasing to God. The moral law of God, not the dietary ceremony calendar, but the moral law. The do not steal. The do not lie. The do not commit adultery. The put away sexual immorality. The stop thieving. All all of these laws are actually ways that the law points us to love God and love neighbor. And so when we follow the moral law like a guide, we already have God's favor. And so out of that favor, the law guides us into a life that pleases God. Never to save us, only to lead us into life. That's why James calls it the law of liberty. Friends, did you know that sin always binds you and puts you in a cage but yet it lies and says, free yourself from your being bound and get out of the cage. What sin says is you are bound to this morality. Free yourself. Meanwhile, the reality is you climb into the cage when you live for sin and you are stuck in there The New Testament, Romans 8, specifically says that we're slaves to sin. But we become free when we come to Christ. Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. He opens up the cage and says, come out. Isn't that good news? And so friends, let's end with this. No matter what you've done in your life, I don't care how bad you've been. I don't care how good you've been. You need Jesus. You might say, look, compared to other people, I am practically the fourth member of the Trinity. If that's you tonight, you need the second member of the Trinity to save you. (laughs) Because you think way too highly of yourself. Friends, we can, did you know this? We can run from God and reject him. One, by being so good that we don't need him. You've rejected God and run from him. Or we can live a life of utter rebellion and swim in sin. And at the same time, we've run from God. Both are running from God. One just does it in the positive. 
One does it in the negative. Friends, let's not be either. Let's instead run to Christ who has open arms, willing to receive us, willing to forgive us, willing to wash us and cleanse us of all our sins and willing to then come and dwell inside of us by his own spirit. Willing to guide us by that same spirit, empower us by that same spirit to live a life of love and gratitude and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. God will do this for you by his own strength and power. This is what's available to everyone and anyone. That's what it says. To everyone who believes. And so my encouragement is believe. Trust in Jesus. Ask him to forgive you of your sin. Ask him to fill you with his spirit that you might live for him. Ask him to change and transform you and cleanse you of all your sin. And he will. You will be his and he will be yours. And then friends, go and share that same story with other people. Pray for them and share this good news that they too might be saved. We're going to take communion and celebrate what Jesus has done for us. He is the end of the law for righteousness. Why? Because he has fulfilled the law. This is the good news, that we are safe in Christ. He has done everything for us, and we can rest in him. His body broken and his blood shed are the means by which we are saved. So, let's pray. We'll sing a song together, and then we'll take communion together as one church. Father, we thank you for this gift of grace, this gift of righteousness that is ours in Christ. We thank you that we do not have to earn it. We thank you that we could not earn it, but it must be gifted to us. Father, I pray that we would never, ever stand on our own righteousness. Father, I pray that we would never, ever look to ourselves, even in a subtle way for our salvation, but we would look to Christ. Father, I pray that you would give us grace to live in a way that pleases you by your power, by your spirit. Father, help us to live a life of love and gratitude for your glory and for the good of others. We thank you for Jesus in our place. And as we sing of him and this good news about Jesus, and as we celebrate communion together, would you be present with us? Minister to our needs, speak to our hearts. You know what each person needs in this room. So come, please, Holy Spirit, and do your work. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Please stand. John wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And in verse 1 and 2, he says this, listen. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father. We have a a defense attorney with the Father. We have one who stands by our side, shoulder to shoulder, with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. I love that name for Jesus. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And I would be happily titled Chris Moran, the unrighteous. If I have the righteous standing next to me as an advocate. Friends, that's the reality for any of you who know Jesus. Your name, the unrighteous. Yet you have Jesus, the righteous, as your advocate. Isn't that good news? And that transfer of righteousness happens on the cross. He gets our sin. His body is broken, symboled by this little cracker, the body broken, and the blood shed of Jesus. The juice here represents his blood being shed. He is punished in our place as a substitute for our sin. He gets our sin, we get his righteousness. And as believers in Jesus, as ones who have trusted in him alone for salvation, we now have this continuous advocacy before the Father what Jesus Christ accomplished for us. Friends, what I'm saying is you are safe in Christ. 
If you're in Jesus, you are safe. And you can ask him for the power to live in a way that pleases him. That's a prayer that God will answer because it's according to his will. And so let's remember what Jesus accomplished for us. Righteousness, substitution, death in our place. Jesus' body broken and bloodshed. Let's worship together as we remember Jesus. Father, we thank you that you do not treat us as our sins deserve. Father, we thank you that you love us despite our sin. You loved us so much that you sent your son, your only son, as a sacrifice for the sins of all those who would ever trust in you. Father, we thank you that you have drawn us to yourself by your spirit, that we would be ones who would know you, who would love you, who would have trusted in Jesus. Father, I pray that this great news, this gospel that we stand on, Jesus that we stand on, we would never get tired of hearing of Christ, of singing of Christ, of remembering what Jesus has accomplished for us. We would never tire of coming to him again and again for help, for advocacy, for cleansing. Father, I pray, refresh our hearts. Let us rest in Christ. May we go from this place feeling lighter because you have taken our burden. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. Rest for your souls. Father, would we know this soul rest that is ours in Christ, safe in him. We thank you, Father, for Jesus in our place. And it's in his name we pray. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.